Tonight's scripture reading will come out of the book of Matthew and 1 Peter. Matthew 5, 10 through 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory of God rests on you. This is the word of God. Indeed. And Eric, if you just stay up here just for a second. Eric just returned from... Uh... Uh, down in Central America because we're in the midst of uh, looking at a new ministry partner. We, we have partnerships with various agencies uh, that we get involved in directly as a community that you get involved in. And so I asked Eric to just hang around. I know he plays guitar, but he also does some other things for us because he went down there. Tell us uh, the organization that we're pondering working with and what the experience was like, Eric. Yeah, so... Uh, I was a part of a small group from Bethany, uh, Jack Brace, our mission pastor who also leads our Northeast campus, Scott and Heather Sund from Bethany North, uh, and Heather Taninga from Bethany Eastside who also represents the mission committee. Uh, and we went to Nicaragua and Honduras uh, to a few communities uh, led by Agros International. So they're an international organization uh, based here in Seattle. There's some good photos here. Uh, and... Uh, Agros's kind of vision is that they would alleviate uh, and eradicate even poverty uh, through providing uh, the opportunity to buy uh, agricultural land for poor uh, rural uh, families. And so they gather in these communities. Often they have these plots of land that have been divided up and they've uh, signed on the dotted line that they're going to work this land and, and pay it back over time. Uh, and so they have uh, crops such as uh, jalapenos that you'll see here. They, I love they grow the, the sugar cane high around it to protect it from wind uh, and also uh, from bugs. And so there's just a ton of innovation. Uh, Agros hopes that as these people uh, own this land that they would um, then be able to uh, be uh, sustainable on their own, that they would... Uh, be able to provide everything that their family needs, that they would also be able to realize uh, God-given potential, and that they would also be able to uh, pass down the values and the resources that, uh, that enable them to flourish to uh, future generations. And we saw that at work uh, both in Nicaragua and Honduras. Thanks. And you had a couple of profound experiences, I know, that we talked about. Could you just share that one uh, with that particular family that was so moving for Yeah, you? so there's a, a picture here. That's me rocking out Latin style. Uh, I didn't know. Are you going to get one of those giant guitars? Yeah. Those are amazing. It's, a, it's like a bass guitar. Oh, is that? Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ba Bajo. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, Very good. So this is Orlando and his daughter Vivian, and they uh, live in Honduras. Uh, and they have uh, a tilapia, uh, tilapia pools down in the lowlands where their home is that they spend a year digging out and prepping. And then every six months, if all goes well, they yield a harvest. Uh, and they also have, um, there you can see tilapia, they also have uh, coffee, plant, uh, coffee trees high up in the mountains. Uh, and their particular challenge, uh, they lost their, their mother about a year ago to cancer. Uh, and that kind of reignited some battles with alcohol 
in Orlando's life. And so his daughter, Vivian, 19 years old, she goes to school on Thursdays for about three hours. That's what she can fit into her week. She's currently in eighth grade. Uh, They went through the legal paperwork to kind of put her in charge of this land. And so she's ultimately responsible for it. Uh, A a huge crushing weight on her back. Uh, She cares for her father and uh, travels each day back and forth between the tilapia that need to be fed eight times a day and these coffee plants that are, that are uh, uh, somewhat fragile. Uh, and so we asked her, right next to her coffee trees, and this little stream running down right between it, beautiful spot, uh, kind of a leading question. One of us asked, like, so do you, do you want to, like, get out of here, like, get educated and move on and start your family? And she, uh, just with the look of someone who had really counted the cost, said, uh, mi futuro está aquí. My future is here. Uh, and so we were so honored to hear that. I know the, the trees were crying, we were crying, the fish were crying, they stopped. Uh, and uh, so I just want to stop and thank you all for uh, the ways in which you partner with Bethany, who partners with other people both locally and around the world to really create uh, new futures for people. Uh, so this is kind of the, one of the final steps in this longer discernment process, but we hope that <coughs> we'll announce Agros as our as our next uh, global partner. So thank you. Thanks so much for going, Eric. I said, it's an extra load to you know, zip down there and zip back. I know it takes a lot of energy, but uh, this is what we collectively desire to do to bring the shalom of Christ into other places. And you are uh, with us in this partnership. So I want to thank you, Eric, and thanks to all of you as well. Let's give Eric a round of applause for sharing. And if you're new, my name is Richard Dahlstrom. I'm the senior pastor, and I want to thank you uh, for being patient with me last week when I wasn't here. I had a flu virus, and it was terrible. I won't go into all the symptoms, but it was terrible. And I'm feeling a little bit better, but it's kind of slow on the rebound, actually, this, time, this particular time around. So uh, Mindy read some scripture for us, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, 11, 12 or so, and 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're, we're talking this evening about uh, the conclusion, actually, of this series within the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus teaches on a mountain, Matthew 5 to 7. And the section we're looking at is the Beatitudes, and this is the final consideration of the Beatitudes as we enter into a Lenten season, beginning with Ash Wednesday, and then considering some I am's uh, of Christ. Jesus says, I'm the bread, I'm, I'm the truth, I'm the way, I'm light, I'm life. We'll look at those things leading up to Easter. But this concludes our series tonight by looking at the very last uh, of what are called these Beatitudes, the blessings. Blessed are you if you're persecuted. That's what we're considering. This is very strange, actually. All the... Beatitudes seem to turn conventional wisdom values on their head. Uh, But this one challenges us in very profound ways. And so take a moment. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll look at this uh, together. Father, thank you that we can gather. Thank you for your word. Uh, We pray your Holy Spirit would now teach us, that we'd have ears to hear what you desire to say to us. Lord, we, we gather within these walls in every state of heart, some of us in doubt, some of us in weariness, some of us in hope and confidence, some of us rejoicing, And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would uniquely speak to each one of us, but also that you'd speak to us as a community and shape us to be a voice of hope and the presence of light in our city and in our world. Thank you for that, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When I finished seminary, I moved to Friday Harbor, uh, which is up in the San Juan Islands. I was a little pastor of a little tiny church there for a number of years. And one of the best-selling books during my time in Friday Harbor, mid to late 80s, 
was a book entitled All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Has anyone in the room read the book? One person. Like, isn't this funny? Like, 8 a.m., which is our oldest crowd, <clears throat> lots of hands go up, and then 9, a few less, 11, a few less. Now, tonight, 1. And at, at 7, no one will have been born in 1987. <laughs> let alone have read the book. But that's the way it is. Uh, and, and so each chapter title of this book uh, is something from kindergarten. That's something you learned in kindergarten. So for, here's the chapter titles. Share everything, chapter one. Chapter two, play fair. Don't hit people. A very good chapter, by the way. <clears throat> Put things back where you find them. Clean up your mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. When, you're, when you hurt somebody, say you're sorry. Wash your hands before you eat. Always flush. Each one of these is a chapter. Uh, and then one of the best chapters, warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. It's my favorite diet truth ever. But uh, not everything was covered in the book. All the good stuff was covered in the book. Here's something I learned in kindergarten. If you don't fit in, you pay a price. Did anybody else learn that in kindergarten? Like, uh, there's a cultural norm, and if you're outside the cultural norm, People pick on you. My thing, <clears throat> then and now, was big ears. I have big ears, abnormally large ears. I, I'm not proud of it, but it is the way it is. Uh, but when you're young and, you're, and your mom gives you kind of this buzz cut here and you can't hide your ears the way I do, uh, then they stand out. And, and uh, I'll never forget, I mean, kids at first called me big ears. But then eventually they called me Dumbo because Dumbo was the elephant from the Disney thing, right, with the big ears. And uh, this is not pleasant, to be singled out for a thing and, and named, and the word we use here is reviled, right? People are mocking you. So uh, nobody likes that, nobody wants that. But the re here's the reality. As humans, what's different than the tribe gets labeled often. And then uh, people pay a price for it. And now along comes Jesus, and look what he says. He says, look, um, if you're labeled, not only don't worry about it, actually rejoice. Rejoice. What is that about? Well, let's back up, because that's what we're going to look at this evening. What does it mean to rejoice when, when you're persecuted? Rejoice when you suffer. Rejoice when people say bad things about you and untrue things about you. What are, what is that, why would we rejoice? And how, how do we live into this uh, adequately and with, with wisdom? So we have to back up and set the context again. I'll remind you, this is Sermon on the Mount, which is this articulation of Jesus' values. And Jesus' values take much that is in our world and flip things on their head. And so what we've been doing in Matthew chapter 5 is really a, a total reversal of that which prevailed in a world where those who boast get to the top. Here's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In a world uh, where uh, the, the goal is to be happy all the time and where Saturday Night Live is the, kind of the best show on television, Jesus comes along, what does he say? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. In a world of bombastic verbosity, blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness rather than those who live by the lusts of their appetites. Blessed are the merciful, they'll receive mercy rather than those who are always judging and paying back. Blessed are the peacemakers rather than the violent. And then we come to this one. Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so over and over again, Jesus is turning values 
on, on their heads. And now this final one, here's how Jesus summarizes it as articulated by one translation. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution because the persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Now, none of us in the room are facing this overt persecution of being arrested or beheaded or anything like that because of our faith. And so this may seem remote to you, but stick with me as we go along. We'll see that it applies to us. Verse 11 and 12. Not only that, says Jesus, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you in order to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they're uncomfortable. Be glad when that happens. Even give a cheer for though they don't like it, I do, says Jesus. And all heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. That's it. So we're going to talk this evening about a new kind of R&R. And the reason I say new kind of R&R is because there is in our culture an acronym. R&R stands for what? Anybody? Rest and relaxation, right? Hey, been working hard for the last six months at Amazon, you know, putting in 50-hour weeks or whatever, a lot of overtime, you know, inventing. Uh, things that just know my thoughts and then they deliver my books or whatever they're working on, I don't know. But, you know, I've been working and now it's time for a break. I'm going to have a little R&R, right? Down in Costa Rica, down, you know, Hawaii, whatever it is. Time for rest and relaxation. Now, I'm using R&R in a different way this evening. Uh, R&R here stands for rejection and resistance, right? Time for a little R&R, says Jesus. Hey, you get a little R&R, rejoice, if you're rejected, rejoice. If people resist you, re rejoice. So we're told to consider it a joy when we're persecuted, slandered, mocked. And as Jesus makes abundantly clear, the history of God's people is a history of people who are rejected and resisted. Now, let's just stop and ask the question before we get into these uh, observations, three different contexts for R&R. Let's ask a question, like, why, does, why is it this way? And the reason it's this way is because every culture is a force... And the, and the force not only invites conformity to the culture, but uh, generally, the force that is culture makes outsiders pay a price. That's just the way the world works, right? And so uh, we think that what we do is normal, but it's not normal. It's, it, what, the things that we do are just cultural things. And there are, there's a billion examples of this. I mean, we're in Western culture, and so there's a lot of things that we presume to be normal. Is it normal that babies sleep in cribs? No. It's not normal, it's cultural, right? Is it, is it normal uh, uh, that you go to school? Is it normal that you don't, how many carry money anymore? I'm not asking because I want to rob you, I'm just curious. Like, do you carry cash? Anybody carry cash? A few people do. Many of us don't anymore. When I see somebody and they open a wallet, it's an old leather wallet and they pull it out of their back pocket and, the, and they've got ones and fives and a 10 and a couple hundred dollar bills, I go, man, who does that anymore? Because there's a cultural movement toward like an app on your phone where I go, oh, Mindy, here's $5, boom, and it's gone and I never touch money anymore, right, you see? And so like cultures change, is it, is, it, is, it, uh, is it normal to own a phone? Or is that just a cultural norm? Like, is it right to own a phone? Is it right to buy local? Is it right to eat fast food? <laughs> Is it right to post a no Iraq war sign uh, 2002 on your lawn? Well, it's right in Seattle, big time. I mean, all the way around the lake. I'm running the lake, 2002, no Iraq war, hundreds of signs. And I get on a plane, I land in Phoenix, I don't see a single sign. All the signs I see support our troops. Now, you take a, a no Iraq war sign, plant it in the middle of those support our troops signs, and see how people like that. Suddenly, you're an outsider. 
or take a support your troops sign and plant it in the middle of these uh, Noah-Rack war signs. You're an outsider, do you see? So like there's, there's culture, it's a group of shared values. And we, and we have, there's a million things that constitute culture and people pay when they don't fit in the culture. Well, here's one of the things that things ex- exist in our culture. You guys have heard of this, the HOV lane in your, on, the, on the freeway. There's a lane where like you're supposed to have two people in a car and some places three. It just fries me. It totally fries me when there's a person with one person in the car driving in that lane. I just, I'm mad. I want to blow up their car. <laughs> like when I'm there on 85th, uh, in a long line of people with and there's a red light and you're waiting patiently because this is, you know, for the common good and civic duty and all this stuff. And, you know, we're contributing to a healthy commute for everybody. And then along comes Mr. You know, BMW over here, you know, with sunglasses and one person in the car, and they zip by and I go, man, who are you? You think you're God or something? You get to get in the HOV lane and there's only one of you in the car? No, wrong. I mean, it's, and all of us are thinking the same thing as he zips by because there's a cultural piece. Look, this is what we do. We, you know, we're born, we buy a house, uh, on, on, on credit, we, you know, we, we get married, we raise some kids, we retire, we pay our taxes. Like there's a norm. Live in a van, see how people react. Let's say I'm never paying anything on credit anymore. See how people react. I mean, there's norms that when you, when you violate the norms, you pay a price. So that when Dietrich Bonhoeffer in 1933 in Germany warns against the idolatry of the state at a time when nationalism is on a meteoric rise, he, he pays a price. He gets some R&R, some resistance, some rejection, both from the church and the state. When the Waldenses want to read their Bibles in their native tongue in the 10th century in the, in the uh, southern Alps in Italy, they're persecuted by the Catholic Church, and so they end up going and hiding in the Alps because everybody knows you don't read the Bible in your native tongue. You wait for the priest to read it in Latin and, and then interpret it for you. That's what you do. And to, to, you have the, to have the gall to think you're going to read your own uh, tongue? No, we'll kill you if you read in your own tongue. So they went into hiding, right? Cultural norm, violated. When Mennonites rejected infant baptism in Germany and, and decided that uh, uh, you should be baptized once you understand it as an adult, Martin Luther, who favored infant baptism, said, listen, if anybody is an adult and they ask you to be baptized for a second time, I want you to hold them under until they drown. That was Martin Luther who said that. So like there's a norm, oh, you don't, you don't fit the norm? Boom, we're gonna make you pay a price. Over, over, over again. Christians in Egypt after the Arab Spring, R&R. <laughs> Christians in Eastern Europe uh, during the Cold War, R&R. People who don't believe in credit card debt, R&R. People who live below the tax line because they're pacifists and they don't wanna pay war tax, they're persecuted. <laughs> they're at least thought of as weird. Anytime someone swips, swims upstream against prevailing culture, this is the way of it. And you're a vegetarian in beef, Nebraska. Nobody likes you, right? And, and, and so there's a danger in this conversation. And the danger is that we end up presuming that anytime we're outside the cultural norm, we're suffering for Jesus' sake. Not necessarily, right? When these uh, people at Westboro Baptist Church go to the funerals of soldiers and uh, hold up signs, God hates gay people. Uh, They suffer. But is this, I mean, are they suffering for righteousness? Well, how about this? Um, My friend is a pastor and he preaches very kind of 
harsh, judgmental messages, and his church keeps shrinking, and he'll, so he stands up and he says, hey, you see all these empty seats? It's a good sign. You know, I'm doing God's will. Because I'm speaking the truth, and nobody wants to hear it. Like, is he suffering for righteousness? Or my friends who, um, they became Christians, and then, and then they read in their, in their Bible the words of Jesus to the rich young ruler. Do you remember this? The rich young ruler says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you've done everything, but there's still one thing you need to do. You need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Now, my friends had just come to Christ, and they come to Christ by reading their Bible. No, like nobody, quote, unquote, witnessed to them. They read their Bible, and they, they, they prayed, and they came to Christ. So they're reading their Bible. They come to this, and they didn't know enough to know that this isn't what you're supposed to do. And so do you know what they did when they read that Jesus said they should sell everything? They sold everything. They sold everything, they gave everything away, they kept a spare uh, uh, set of clothes and, a, and each a sleeping bag and a backpack, and then they went around and they started telling people about Jesus, they bought some Bibles and began handing out Bibles. They were sleeping on park benches. And people thought they were crazy. Is, is that what Jesus is talking about? So that's kind of the question on the table. Well, it's tricky. What Jesus is saying in this closing section uh, is that uh, we're intended to live with this measure of kind of courage and liberty, understanding that if we follow Christ, we will often be swimming upstream against the norms of culture. And when you swim against, upstream against the norms of culture, you pay a price for it. And so what Jesus speaks of in this, in this setting here, uh, he, he talks about three forms of R&R. Like those who suffer R&R for righteousness sake, those who suffer R&R on account of the name of Jesus, and those who have suffered R&R historically. So suffering for righteousness sake, suffering for the name of Jesus on my account, and, and suffering throughout history. Those are three things we will look at. We begin here by looking at the, those who suffer R&R for righteousness sake. So righteousness here means actions taken uh, because of a longing for shalom. We talked about um, you know, going down to Honduras and Nicaragua, and the reason that we do that, the reason we have partnerships in, in uh, Rwanda the, the reason we're involved around the world in those kind of things and locally in a shelter for women right here across the street in our building and in partnerships with the Aurora Commons and now with a, with a new uh, homeless camp uh, taking root on 86 in Aurora right here uh, as our neighbors. The reason we'll be involved in all of these things is because our desire is to bring the peace of God to everyone that God brings our way to, so that the, the, the hope and meaning and light and beauty and hospitality and justice that is Christ can be embodied through us as we share all that God has given with us with others. Freely we've received. What does Jesus say? John 14, freely we've received. Freely give. And so we want to give what God has received us. And, and every, every time that people move into the imparting of shalom and, and they intervene to bless another, this is so weird in the scriptures at first glance, Jesus does good things. And when Jesus does good things, people are not happy. Have you ever pondered this before? Jesus heals a guy in Mark chapter 2, and the, and the, and the disciples, are, or excuse me, the, the religious leaders of the day are like this. What's he doing healing a guy on the Sabbath? And so, so he heals, but rather than rejoicing, there's anger. And, and then uh, Jesus engages in conversation with the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, the woman at the well, and everybody's like this. Why is Jesus talking to that lady? First, A, she's a lady, and men don't talk to women. B, she's a Samaritan, and Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. See, uh, uh, she's of questionable moral character. 
five failed marriages. Why? Jesus, look, the clean doesn't talk with the unclean. And so Jesus heals, people are offended. Jesus crosses social divides, people are offended. Jesus intervenes in John chapter 8 uh, to save the life of a woman caught, caught in adultery, and Levitical law declares she should be dead. <laughs> And Jesus writes some stuff down in the sand in the face of the accusers of this woman in response to their question, what should we do with her? And then Jesus stands up. He says, hey, any of you who don't have sin, go ahead and throw rocks. And everyone drops their stones and leaves. And Jesus intervenes and saves her life, right? And the people who left were mad at Jesus. And then that, that's John 8. Next chapter, John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind from birth, Right? Boom, and suddenly they, this guy sees, and rather than rejoicing, the disciples, excuse me, again, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they, they, they go to the guy who's been healed, and they say, who healed you? How'd this happen? And if it happened on the Sabbath, it shouldn't have happened at all. So every, Jesus is bringing shalom, and the result is annoyance, frustration, and anger. Isn't that weird? And then, and then, the, the whole thing kind of reaches this climax in John chapter 11 where Jesus raises a man from the dead. He's, Lazarus has been dead three days. Jesus raised from the dead. And when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the conclusion, the collective conclusion of the people is this. This man, boom, must die. Must die. It's time to kill Jesus, said the religious leaders. So, so like, why does this happen? Well, let's note here, shalom is, is like, the, first of all, the imparting of a specific blessing. And that, that's what it means to, uh, like if you suffer for righteousness sake, it's because you're doing something specific. Bill Hybels was a pastor of a giant church, and in the, in the late 80s, when AIDS was just beginning to be a thing, uh, he, he led his church in a campaign to go into Africa and into the States in various places and minister to people who had AIDS and he met the ire of many Christians for doing that. Met by scorn, was scorned by the larger church. Some people support life in the womb, and when they do so verbally, vocally, uh, uh, they meet scorn. When you do the right thing to bring shalom to some, hear this, when you do the right thing to bring shalom to some, it's always threatening to others. And this is why Jesus pays a price. Now, I'm going to unpack this a little bit, why it's threatening others in just a minute, but just know that's the way it is. Martin Luther King, shalom, right? Like deliverance, release, justice. I, you know, I have a dream. Yes, and as a result of his dream, he was, he was assassinated. Why? Because shalom for one group is threatening to another group. When William Wilberforce in the British Parliament began to advocate uh, for the end of slavery, the abolition of slavery, he paid a price. Uh, deliverance for one group uh, is, is threatening to another group. When Abraham Lincoln uh, introduced the 13th Amendment legislation, uh, deliverance for one group, threatening to another group. Over and over again in the Bible, you see the same thing. And here's the interesting thing. Hebrews 11 says that uh, some who do the right thing never suffer much, and others who do the right thing, they get killed. So you can't, you can't decide whether you're going to do the right thing based on the perceived outcome. You can't do that. You just have to do the right thing and leave the results with God, right? 
And, 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 and the thing is, it's going to be hard for you to hear this. You don't even always know that what you're doing is the right thing. You want to try and do the right thing. You pray. You act. And why do I say that? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew it was right uh, to expose the idolatry of nationalism in Germany. He knew that. But to his last breath, he didn't know whether he was right when he tried to assassinate Hitler, involved in a plot to assassinate. He didn't know. And, and, and Bonhoeffer said, look, here's what I did. I prayed. And then based on the revelation I received, I acted, but it's in God's hands. I don't know. There have been times in my life when I thought I did the right thing, and looking back years later, I think it was the wrong thing. And at the time, I thought it was the right thing, and even I suffered, and I thought I was suffering righteousness. The classic example in my own life was when I was in college here at Seattle Pacific, and I was working in a warehouse in Seattle, uh, and my job was to fill orders so I'd get a sheet of paper and say Fred Meyer, somebody wanted some, you know, paint and brushes and paint thinner and stuff. And so I would wander through this warehouse, literally the shopping cart, pull stuff off, put it in a shopping cart, put it all in a box, and then it would get shipped off to a certain Fred Meyer. So that's what I did. And after about a week, you know where everything is, the job becomes mindless and you begin to loathe the job. At least I did. So I, I'm at this job that I don't like. And I've been there a month, two months, three months, and about the fourth month in where I just dread going to work. I go in one day, and then I go into the bathroom, and someone said a lot of pornography and pasted all over the wall. All, every wall, well, three walls in the bathroom. Pornography, everywhere. So I kind of take a deep breath. Oh, man, what a stupid place I work, you know. And then I get on with my job. And then the second time I'm in the bathroom, I was like this. I'm done. So this, I ripped all the pornography off the wall. And I'm the lowest man on the topo, right? Like, I'm nothing. Walk out in the middle of the warehouse. I said, hey, everybody, break time. Like, who, can I do this? No. Do I do it anyway? Yes. Hey, quit working. Everybody, come here, gather around. I have an announcement to make. And then, you know, once everybody stopped doing their productive work, I make this, you know, great righteous announcement. I go, hey, anybody wants to look at pornography on their own time? That's fine. I don't care. But don't force the rest of us to look at pornography by posting in the bathroom. And I've taken steps to address this. Here's all the porn. And I ripped it up. And I threw it in the air. And then I said, okay, everybody can go back to work now. Are you kidding me? Like, it sounded good at the time. And I did it. And then I, you know, continue on my job. And then the next day, as soon as I show up for work, hey, manager wants to see you in his office. I go in the manager's office, boom, fired, right? Done. I'm done. D why? Well, whatever. I'm done. And, and, but what did I think at the time? Oh, yeah, this is, this is Matthew 5. This is suffering for righteousness. Probably not in retrospect. It's probably a lack of emotional intelligence. That's why I was suffering, Right? <laughs> But do you understand my point? It's very easy because the human heart is deceptive. We can think that we're doing the right thing, we're doing the wrong thing. And then when we do the wrong thing in the wrong way and we suffer for it, we go, oh yeah, this is Matthew 5. Not necessarily. I've watched people who are like brutally honest and it's not honesty, it's a lack of emotional intelligence. Do you understand what I mean by that? Oh, look at him. He's fat. Look at her. She's stupid. Look at that person. They're a big fat sitter, you know? Really? And then you wonder why no one likes you. You're not suffering for Jesus' sake. So, so suffering for righteousness' sake doesn't mean that uh, you're living your life like a chainsaw. You're going and hacking everyone up in the name of Jesus. And then people are mad at you. No, that's not, the, that's not this. Suffering for righteousness' sake means this. Like, you've crossed the social divide and it's threatening somebody. 
You've advocated for a people group and it's threatening to somebody. You've taken a step in God's will and, and other people are threatened by it. So that's R&R for righteousness. Now, second, R&R on my account. Second thing. Because Jesus, what he said, Jesus says, not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me, Jesus. So what, we, what you're going to see, if you really look at your Bible carefully, is that God's people suffer, yes, and they, and, but if you really begin to look, you see that God's people suffer at the hands of two different groups. Uh, God's people suffer, uh, this R&R, this res- resistance and rejection or whatever, they suffer R&R at the hands of the people of God. In other words, you know, institutionalized Christianity imparts, uh, you know, judgment and, and suffering on those who don't fit the mold. And then also, at various times, God's people suffer at the hands of, quote, unquote, the world. It's always been this way. These, these two groups bringing suffering, the, the institutionalized church and the world. And one church history book entitled The Torch of the Testimony uh, has as a, as a thesis that of those two groups, more suffering is dished out from institutionalized religion than the world, though it's debated, right? This author says, though, it will be seen that the true spiritual history of the church often takes its course through the generations of those who were despised by organized Christianity rather than through the edifice of traditional Christianity. In other words, uh, as, as people of faith uh, gather together and organize and institutionalize, one of the great dangers is that the perpetuation of the institution takes uh, a higher priority than living faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, and it happens all the time. It's happened throughout church history, right? And so in the name of Jesus, you know, we steal land. In the name of Jesus, we colonize. In the name of Jesus, we, in, we invoke and advocate and, and defend slavery. In the name of Jesus, we do things that marginalize and oppress, and it's terrible. And then those who stand for liberty receive kind of judgment and persecution, excommunication in the name of Jesus. So that happens. Acts chapter 5, the you know, church is growing. It's the very early days of the church in Jerusalem, and Peter is preaching. And then the religious leaders who are in charge of the temple are threatened because thousands have come to Christ. And now they're beginning to live into their liberty in Christ and beginning to question the validity of, of temple worship and the authority of the priesthood as the manner in which people will know God. No, we now know God through Christ, and it's freeing rather than through the law and the priesthood and particularly the pharisaical minutiae interpretation of the law, we're freed from it. So, you know, in anger, Peter is arrested and beaten up and the people say, these leaders, we forbid you to talk about Jesus ever again. That's not the world. This is like, in God's name, we don't want you to talk about Christ. Acts chapter 5. Of course, what does Peter say? He says, well, whatever. I mean, that's my paraphrase, but actually what he says is whether it's right to serve God or man, you be the judge, but we're going to serve God. And if you beat me up, you beat me up. If you throw me in jail, you throw me in jail. But I'm going to continue to talk about Christ because Christ is life. So look, there are times when fidelity to Christ is offensive to institutional Christianity. Then in Acts chapter 16, you see a great example of suffering at the hands of the world, verses 16 to 19. There's a young girl, and she's a fortune teller, and she comes to Christ. And when she comes to Christ, her, quote, owners have lost their source of income because she won't do this anymore. 
And this actually leads to a riot in the city of Philippi. Why? Because look, uh, suddenly nobody's buying idols anymore and the silversmiths are unemployed and now the fortune teller. And man, if this keeps going, the entire economy will collapse. And, and, and so Paul is beaten up and thrown in jail. Acts 16. So in either case, Acts 5, Acts 16, what's happening? God's people are suffering, in one case at the hands of God's people, in another at the hands of, quote, unquote, the world. Either way, here's the deal. The reason that there's suffering going on, this is central, the reason there's suffering going on is because there's a group of people who have interests that are threatened by the gospel. Does this make sense? I have interests that are threatened by the gospel, and I, like, I want my interests preserved. So you can do whatever you want as long as you don't touch my money or my job or my upward mobility or my prejudices. That is a bit of a problem because unless we're perfect, we who gather tonight, I'd argue all of us in the room have some interests that are other than Christ. We all do. Would you agree? Yeah. We are, I mean, yes, we love Jesus, but we haven't arrived yet. So there's things in our lives where we're, you know, we hang on. Yeah, I want Jesus as long as I don't lose my house or my family or my reputation. Yeah, Jesus is fine. As long as he's the add-on. <laughs> and when my central interests are threatened, well, you know, what then? That's the question on the table. And there are times... Uh, when the priorities of Christ will cut right across my priorities, it happens. And at that moment, I either find myself on the, on the right side of history because I repent and align myself with Christ, or I find myself on the wrong side of history. And this is not just a matter of people being mad at you. Living the truth, or speaking the truth, or hopefully both living and speaking the truth, will result in people rejecting you because you, by virtue of your life, are calling people to a life that is threatening to their own status quo. It's true. So when you say marriage is not just a contract, but a covenant, and you live it out that way, that's threatening to people who live uh, in a state of sexual anarchy, to be blunt. I like my freedom. When you say that uh, God calls us to care for the earth, it might be threatening if I really begin to think about uh, what that simple statement would mean for my shopping and my lifestyle. Anytime uh, we take a step toward fidelity to Christ, such a step will necessarily be a critique to another's self-interests. And there are times when other people are taking a step toward Christ, and their step is a critique to my self-interests. This is why we need to grow together and listen to each other. If I could just take a parenthesis for just a minute, I'll say, what's so troubling to me right now in political discourse in our country is... Uh, that though none of us have the moral high ground, the discourse all sounds like we all do have the moral high ground. And so we're speaking, not listening. We desperately, we desperately need to listen to each other. And the listening comes from presuming that God's not done perfecting me yet. And so there are people 
who, ha- who voted differently than I do, who have a vastly different view of the world and politics, but what they have to say may have value to me, and I need to listen. I need to listen. In the same way that others need, should listen to me. But as, as soon as we label, then we objectify, and as soon as I objectify, then I don't listen anymore. And we do it all the time. We do it politically, and we do it with people across social margins. When you say homeless, boom, just like that, just sounds so, you know, easy, rolls off our tongue, but we dump a kind of a dump truck load of assumptions on a human. Homeless, oh yeah, you know what that means. No, you don't know what that means. You don't know what it means, mental illness, or uh, heroin addiction, or domestic violence. You, you don't know. Anyone you know what that means? Republican, <laughs> or Democrat, or environmentalist, or gun rights advocate. So we need to listen to each other. But if history is any indication, when our position is threatened, we don't listen. We persecute. In the 19th century, the big divide, uh, particularly the second half of the 19th century, was regarding slavery and, and the human rights of blacks. And you, I can show you 19th century commentaries that declared definitively that Africans were subhuman based on a perverse reading of Genesis chapter 9. And, and, and pastors would stand up in a congregation just like this and say, anyone who calls an African human, they're excommunicated. Are you kidding me? No, that happened in America, right? And it happened because there's these vast swaths of blind spots. And if we're not in a dialogue and listen and allow positions that we hold dear to be held up to the light, then our only other response is to persecute. (laughs) And if that was the issue then, today... Some are threatened by calls to simple living. Look at what will happen to the economy if everybody lives simply. It's terrible. Go shop. Really. That's one way of looking at the world. Others are threatened by calls to care for the earth. Others are threatened by calls to to lay down weapons. Others are threatened by calls to elevate marriage once again to a covenant, not a contract. Others are, are threatened by calls to protect life in the womb. And some of these calls to follow Jesus will cost us. So if we're on the wrong side of an issue, we either embrace the call and pay the price or we shoot the messenger. That's all. There are no other options. You either, look, we repent or that person calling us to repent becomes our enemy. <laughs> Which brings us to the last thing. We see this um, R&R throughout history because this is what Jesus said. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. It was, this has always been the way of it. Uh, we as humans uh, have, we have, we, we have a lot, each one of us in the room, we have a life that we, we have built of some sort. And within this life that we built, uh, there are things that we hold dear and we don't want those things threatened. And when another comes along and threatens that which we hold dear, um, we're tempted then to become uh, the persecutor, you see. And when Jesus threatens what we hold dear, we need to adapt. And if we adapt, others who don't adapt, then they will persecute us. So if you look at church history, 
You go all the way back to the, in the first family. Like you had Adam and Eve, and then they had a couple of sons, Cain and Abel. Well, what happened immediately? Cain killed Abel. First, and that was religious persecution. It was, it was over worship that Cain killed Abel. Noah, he was mocked for following God. Joseph, he was rejected and hated by his brothers. Isaiah, he was sawn in two. Ezekiel, people gathered to hear him, and when they gathered, the people said to Ezekiel, listen, Ezekiel, we're not here to listen to what you actually have to say. We, like, you're just entertaining. You're, and this is literally the, the, the quote. Ezekiel, you're a sensual song. We just like listening to you. You're just funny, that's all. You're the Jimmy Fallon of the seventh century, so we're, here we are, right? Jeremiah, nobody listens. Amos, he was a fig farmer, and then he begins to pontificate about economic justice, and as soon as he begins to speak about justice, what do people say? Hey, aren't you a fig farmer? Get out of here. Go do your farming, man. We, we will not listen. You don't like the message? What do you do? Shoot the messenger. Jesus, Jesus isn't he from Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Man, that's the Yakima of the Middle East, right? Who cares about it? No, look, as soon as you begin to think that way, you're the wrong side of history. That's when over and over again we see this. And so Jesus is saying, when people say that about you, don't worry about it. But then let's also recognize, and it's just a reminder, not all persecution is godly. Sometimes it's just persecution because you made a dumb choice. <laughs> How do you know the difference? Well, we as a community and family, it's incumbent upon us, friends, that we be saturated with Christ's values. Saturated. So that we're always allowing Christ to critique our money, our sexuality, how we treat our bodies, how we treat our time, our propensities toward isolation, our propensities toward consumerism and nationalism, materialism and upward mobility, like allowing Christ to critique so that we, in increasing measure, seek to represent the heart of Christ. And if we do that, we'll stand apart from the crowd. If I stand apart from the crowd, some in the crowd will be threatened. And when that happens, we'll be persecuted individually or collectively. And when that happens, here's Jesus, leap for joy. Why? Because when you move toward the kingdom of God, even though you're persecuted, here's the good news. You know you're moving toward the kingdom, and I can't stress this strongly enough. The reason you leap isn't because suffering is fun. The reason you leap is because the values of the kingdom are good values. So when Jesus said, John 10, I've come that you might have life, what Jesus meant by that is, look, I didn't come to destroy you. I came that you might live a life overflowing with abundance. But to do that, you have to change the way you live. You got to move from greed to generosity from complexity to simplicity, from pride to humility, from, from judgment to grace. You gotta move. But if you move, it'll be good. Even though people hate you for it, it'll be good. <laughs> yeah, it'll be good. See, when we built this building years ago, 2008 or so, there was a funding thing going on and so um, everybody was supposed to give extra money. And so my wife and I were thinking, how can we, you know, we had kids in college and stuff. How are we... What do we, how do we do this? How do we give extra money? So we decided we're not going to eat out again. We're going to stop eating out for two years or three years, whatever it was that we did this thing, this fundraising thing. So we didn't eat out at all. So here's what happened. We, we started saying, hey, we're, since we're not eating out, let's eat in as if we're eating out. Does that make sense? So, you know, candles and we'd go out and buy some like vine ripened tomatoes instead of those hothouse chlorinated things or whatever. And, and, 
get some cheap wine and, and we just cook together. And we have candlelight. And I remember one time we literally cooked some, some steaks on a fire outside. And then we sat outside and ate as the, as the, as the sun sat and the sky turned colors. And we lit a couple of candles and we stayed out there and talked and talked and talked. And we looked and we said, you know, the only reason we're here is because we're trying to live cheaply. <laughs> but we're not really trying to live cheaply. We're trying to practice generosity. And this simple move toward the values of the kingdom of God moved us into something good and life-giving and holy. And we still do it to this day. Like we love to just sit with candlelight and eat. And it was something we learned by taking a step toward the king. Do you see? This is what Jesus is saying. Hey, people are mad at you because you're living kingdom values? Hey, here's the good news. You're living kingdom values. It's a good life. Don't apologize. Let's pray. Father, we, each of us have a long way to go to represent your heart completely. We have assumptions that our culture is laid upon us and our prayer is that even as we approach your table now, with humility, we come to you and allow you to speak to each of our hearts about the assumptions that we bring. Shape us to be people of hope. We pray in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen. As you have an opportunity to respond this evening, this is kind of a summary tonight of the kingdom of God. And so you received as you came in uh, a card in your bulletin that says, I can see. We're closing out our kingdom series by giving you the opportunity tonight to write down a way that you see the kingdom of God values being lived out somewhere. Maybe you see generosity in a certain way. I wrote on my card this morning, I can see the kingdom of God in the life of my friend John because uh, he, he spends his Sundays uh, teaching people to ski who have disabilities. And he, skis, he could ski double black diamonds all day. And instead, he's with people on the easiest slope on the hill to introduce them to something that is life-giving. This is the kingdom of God. And wherever you see the kingdom of God, in mercy, in generosity, in suffering, if you share it here, as you come up to receive communion, just drop it in the basket. And then the, the windows outside are populated with these cards. Take a look at them as well. So share your story and what you see. But then come to this table. Because Jesus has said to us with a very important preposition, this is my body that's broken for you. It's for you. It's for you. Why? So that you might now, having received all that Christ is, begin to embody measure to measure, little by little, more and more of the hope and light and joy and generosity and peace and mercy and wisdom that is Christ. Partake of all that he is. And knowing that you'll fail along the way, and we all do, Jesus said, this is the blood of the covenant, my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins so that you can know that though you've not yet arrived, God is still for you, irrevocably, infinitely, unendingly for you. You're loved and you're empowered to live as a kingdom citizen. Come, eat, drink, and travel counterclockwise through your sections. And if you need gluten-free bread, they're in the blue baskets. Let's worship together.